Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to the latest episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly, Dan Madigan, and special guest correspondent Patrick Martin. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. I think we'll talk about six or seven different UConn sports today, so we're, we're excited to hop into it. Um, first things first, the men's hoops team, uh, after getting off to such a promising start to the season, now on two straight losses, some injuries are piling up, um, some, some uh, strategy and execution issues that, that we'll get into, uh, losses to St. John's at home, very disappointed, 74-70, uh, and then at Creighton, you know, ranked number 11 in the country, but still a 74-66 loss. They'll be playing Butler on Tuesday. They've got Villanova on Thursday. Rematch at St. John's on Sunday. So it's a really uh, busy week for the Huskies. They've got a lot going on, but they're also on a two-game slide. Uh, folks, how do we feel about uh, what we've seen in the last two games from the Huskies? Yeah, Aman, you know, it's tough to see UConn drop two games, especially even without James Booknight, they've played pretty well. Uh, it's just really clear that the defense uh, is the centerpiece of this team and the offense usually without Booknight is just not going to have enough to get the job done. So they're going to need to rely on really, really good performances from Tyrese Martin, Tyler Polly, Adama Sinogo, uh, and maybe RJ Cole, if they want to, you know, be in contention and win games. Um, this isn't a team that can get by with a few people chipping in double digits a game someone's going to need to have a career game pretty much every night until James Booknight comes back. And that's not exactly groundbreaking analysis there, but it's just how this team is for better or for worse. Um, I thought the St. John's loss was, was really tough to swallow. Um, just, you know, really tough to lose to a team like that at home, but all things considered the team had played really well without Booknight, And it's kind of, at some point it was going to catch up to them. Right. And, Everyone was hoping that it maybe wouldn't, but it did against the Johnnies. And as for the Creighton game, it, it's tough to lose, especially considering they played so awful offensively in the first half and then, you know, kind of came back to normal towards the end of the first half and then had a, a, a real chance to at least contend and pull away, but couldn't pull it out against the number 11 team in the country on the road. I know it leaves a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, but that was a pretty pretty solid performance. I thought all things considered, uh, especially when you factor in that horrendous offensive start, but this team is a mess offensively. There, there's not really anyone that can carry the offense uh, and really that can create a shot consistently. And that's what happens when you design an offense around one of the best players in the country, right? This, this isn't ideal what UConn's going through right now, but someone needs to step up Hurley and the coaching staff needs to continue to play their best players for the longest amount of time. Uh, and put their best lineup on the floor. And, you know, the defense is good enough where they'll be able to continue to pull out wins, but they're going to be really ugly uh, like these past few games were more often than not. Yeah. And, you know, we, it, it's very obvious how poorly the offense is. And that's, or the offense was even poor before Tyler Polly completely forgot how to shoot a basketball. Um, one for six against St. John's from three over four against Creighton. I mean, Isaiah Whaley had two has a better percentage in the last two games. 
Uh, and it seems like the Tyler Polly from like the Marquette in the Butler game where he was just absolutely unconscious. Uh, and it wasn't just plays designed for him. He was hitting pull-up threes. He was hitting one, two dribble in motion threes. That for now seems like a mirage and that has completely stalled out any sort of spacing UConn has had. Um, so, you know, they, they were already in a tough spot without book night, but without, Tyler Polly stretching the offense. Um, you, you, you can't expect to go in and beat a Creighton team on the road. And that's exactly how you, you lose to a team like St. John's really seemingly out of nowhere. Um, looking back to the Creighton game. I mean, you have Sonogo, Whaley, Martin and RJ Cole all in double figures. If you tell me that and you just say, okay, well, let's just assume Tyler Polly gets maybe three threes picks up. 10 to 12 points, you, you would feel great about UConn's chances. Uh, that's not to put it entirely on Tyler Polly. It's just that if he's not firing, the margin for error is just so, so slim for the team until book night gets back. I really do kind of think it falls on those seniors because I remember the Tyler Polly game before he tore his ACL last season. I don't remember the exact opponent, but he had that career high game. He wasn't just hitting threes. He was getting to the basket. He was showing off a lot more of a mid-range game. It wasn't just him glued to the three-point line. And what I've noticed ever since he's, I, I guess since Booknight's injury, is the opposing team has basically stapled a defender to him that follows him every single place around the court. So it's really tough for Polly to get threes, which is understandable when you're a guy who's basically not missing from three like he was through that stretch. So if he could get that interior offensive game back and not be so reliant on threes, then other teams aren't going to be able to just keep a guy directly on him the entire time because Polly should be able to drive by him or at least draw attention away from someone else to get them the ball. So I think Polly really needs to rediscover who he is on offense and worry less about getting threes and more about just, I mean, we, it's talked about all the time with Kristen Williams on the women's team where she can't be worried too much about scoring she has to focus on the non-scoring parts of her game and the scoring will come I think Tyler Polly kind of falls under that same category where he needs to focus on doing the non-three-point shooting things on offense setting screens moving around passing the ball getting inside and I think by doing those things the offense is going to come but then we've also seen a regression from Isaiah Whaley even from how he played at the end of last season through the start of this season and Josh Carlton has, I guess, been up and down like we've seen throughout a lot of his career. But even Brendan Adams, who's always been a pretty solid background scorer, you're never going to rely on him to win a game, but he usually contributes a solid amount of points. He really doesn't feel like he's done a whole lot recently. And I think those are the guys you have to focus on because I think for as well as Adama Sanogo's played and for as high as his potential is, I really don't think that he should be relied on to score a ton of points for this team. Obviously, Andre Jackson's out. Jalen Gaffney, I think he's a guy that you can very clearly see has been affected by not having a normal offseason because he doesn't look super progressed from where he was last season, which I think is fine. I don't think the entire offense should be on his shoulders. He's better when he can play more of a background behind the curtain role where you can make a few nice passes, drive to the rim when he has the chance. But it's really got to be those upperclassmen that are carrying this offense. And they're the ones that are kind of letting things down right now. And I Hurley said that in his press conference today on Monday. So I think if those guys can start to figure it out and then RJ Cole too, I forgot to mention him, but 
even if he's not scoring a ton, even though I think UConn does need him scoring more, he really needs to be the heartbeat of this offense. So I think there's a lot of problems, but I also don't think that the offense needs to be incredible book night levels to be better. The defense has been pretty much fine. You can't ask a whole lot more out of a defense considering how bad the offense has been. So if you can just be aiming to get 70, 75 points a game, you're going to be in pretty good shape, especially if you're getting those points in sustainable ways because that means you're going to be able to go on runs and you're going to be able to answer baskets on the other end whereas now it just feels like every single basket is pulling teeth yeah i mean the defense and and the rebounding have been strengths um you know as you noted like shots are not falling it's not not just tyler Polly. it's a thing across the roster their their two-point shooting percentage is low we uh observe them missing missing layups missing other like shots that, that I would say are good shots or, you know, well manufactured by the offense um, that don't fall. And then against St. John's free throws was, was such a big issue. I don't remember if it was against Creighton as well, but um, it's, it's not, you know, it's really easy to say shots need to fall. You need to shoot better if you want to score more. Yeah. But these are, um, you know, not, not crazy shots that they're taking, uh, but that are not falling. So, there's also an element of if they can improve on that aspect of it, or if there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, improvement that comes on, on these, what are normally high percentage shots. Um, I think that can benefit them as well. It was definitely disappointing. I think to see them fall out of the rankings, uh, right. We, we got into the top 25 um, uh, only to have that last for a little while. I think, you know, something, something that works in the Huskies favor, right, wrong, or indifferent is that when it comes to UConn's uh, postseason hopes, if, if we can allow ourselves to, to think about that, um, the NCAA tournament, the committee does evaluate how you perform at full strength versus not. Um, and so, you know, if this UConn team does get to full strength, hopefully this is just a character building time that helps all of those guys that we've mentioned, you know, Cole, Gaffney, Adams, Whaley, Polly, you know, all of them just get hardened by the experience of, of a little bit more of the burden on their shoulders. Uh, and then the team does get to full strength and, and able to be a little bit better. Um, and then, you know, there, there definitely are some, some positive developments uh, going on here. I think primarily first and foremost would be uh, Adama Sinogo, who, who looks like, you know, such a, a tremendous uh, low post offensive talent, which to me is, has been super exciting to watch. Yeah. Aman, I was just following up and, and looking through the box score here. They were 13 for 15 uh, against Creighton from the charity stripe. Uh, UConn was, so it was like 87%. I do think Cole missed one that could have made things a little bit closer towards the end, but that game was kind of out of hand already. Um, I think another big thing is that what you said about the committee is totally fair, but UConn fans need to readjust their expectations. You know, this is not the American athletic conference anymore. It's okay to have two or three losses, two of them coming to a top 10 team. Uh, their crane was ninth, ninth when UConn, they lost the first time in 11th today or as of today. Um, and, you know, the St. John's loss hurts, but St. John's is still certainly better than some of the basement teams that UConn has lost to in the American in the past. So, um, 
while that loss is disappointing, the season isn't over. The sky isn't falling. There's still so many opportunities for, for quality wins. Uh, it still seems like book night can come back before the NCAA tournament, maybe even the big East tournament. So um, it's definitely not great to see the team kind of falter after getting out to such a strong start, but I think they're in a good spot. And I think between the backcourt with, with RJ Cole and Brendan Adams, I think that's going to be kind of the key for this team without book night going forward. I thought Cole played pretty well, uh, didn't hit any three point shots, but he was pretty good about getting to the rim. He only had two turnovers. He had five assists. Um, he was looking a little bit more comfortable and Brendan Adams didn't do a ton offensively. He only had two, three pointers, but I really liked what he brought on the boards and I'm not necessarily the highest on Brendan Adams, but he's one of the few guys on this team that can create a shot either by getting by his defender and getting to the rim and getting fouled or finishing at the rim. And, uh, or he's able to step out and, and hit some open three pointers. So I think that's part of the reason why there's a lot of frustration around this team is that between the missed layups, the hot and cold shooting, there's a lot of improvement. We know that this team can play a lot better offensively, even without book night than they already are, which is something I don't think we could always say about UConn teams in the past. So, uh, you know, they might not be lighting it up for 80, 85 points a game without book night, but there's definitely a situation where more shots start to fall and this offense is, you know, at least capable uh, to hang around with, with any team in this conference, especially with the defense playing the way it is. I think tomorrow's 8.30 tilt is, I think, a huge litmus test for the team. Uh, you know, it's so hard in a conference like the Big East or, or any conference, really, to be a team twice. Um, you know, kudos to Creighton for just doing that. Uh, and since we've played Butler, um, you know, but um, they went and beat Creighton. They took care of DePaul. Um, so... This will be very important to see, you know, can they right the ship, uh, you know, after, you know, dropping two straight, uh, two teams kind of heading in at least for a small portion of the schedule in a different direction. Um, but I think that will be a test to see, like, can they, can they bounce back from this? Um, but because it's starting to look like that, all of that excitement that we were feeling kind of to start the year, that three game, you know, road, road streak might now in hindsight look like that was just a softer portion of the schedule. So I think that will be something to watch going forward. And I think it's important to remember that I've said this a lot, that teams under Dan Hurley at UConn have improved pretty dramatically from the start of the season to the end of the season. And the players on those teams have improved pretty dramatically. And even though these circumstances are a little bizarre, I think it's safe to say historically we've seen that, this type of adversity that they're facing without book night is only going to make the team better as we get down the stretch. I think the biggest concern is just going to be the timeline for James book night. Cause I think that just got pushed back out to another four to six weeks, which doesn't sound particularly promising. That probably puts him in range to return either just before or right around the big East tournament. So UConn is going to have a while without James book night and it is going to have to figure it out at some point because it's not like James this is a three game stretch that it has to get through. This is more or less the entire regular season, if not the entire season that it's going to have to try and figure out without him. So it's not going to be an easy answer, but if they can get through it, figure it out. And then book night comes back, they'll be just way better than they were before it happened. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that I do share some concerns about book night's timeline and um, you know, the, the initial timeline that we had was, was based off of a report 
So that was not from the school, right? At the time, the school said indefinitely. Um, you know, now we're, we're, we're imagining maybe another two to four, or four to six weeks. Um, and, you know, something that, that we should all think about is, is the possibility that book night with, um, you know, with a, uh, the NBA draft uh, uh, just also on his radar may also make the business decision of, of shutting down his season. If, if that does happen, um, you know, hopefully Husky fans are not, are not uh, harsh towards him. Totally understandable decision, but one that I think really is possible given the, the timelines that we're working with. In the short time that he's been out there, Book Knight has looked amazing. He's looked like he's improved from last year. He's He's looked like he's helped his stock. Um, and, you know, if he feels like returning uh, may not be in his best interest or, or trying to do it before he's fully healthy may not work. Um, you know, I think that's something to at least be somewhat, uh, somewhat prepared for the possibility of. That said, yeah, the UConn, this UConn team has plenty of talent to work with, um, plenty to gain from, from the emergence of the different guys we've talked about, the return of a cook a cook. Um, and, and whatever progression we see across the season. But, um, and then if book night returns, you know, amazing. And uh, what a boost that will be for the Big East tournament and potentially the NCAA tournament. But, um, you know, would not fault him if, if, uh, if it turned out to go a certain way where, where he maybe has already suited up uh, for the last time for the Huskies, uh, even though that would be quite sad. Speaking of the NBA, we've still have a number of Huskies uh, playing in the pros. Ray Allen may not be there anymore. Charlie Villanueva and Rip Hamilton uh, are, are now distant memories in the in the footprint of, of UConn Huskies in the NBA. But um, we do know that Kemba Walker is back from injury. Jeremy Lamb is back from injury. And there's some other exciting goings with Huskies in the NBA. Patrick, you want to give us a quick rundown on what's going on? Yeah, I first want to shout out Charlie Villanueva, who tossed us a like for my Creighton preview. Very pumped to see oh, that. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even catch it. My dad texted me. It was just like, and he spelled it in the text group Villanova, liked your, your post. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense, but I think I know what you're talking about. Um, and then other side note, took a look at his profile doing a lot of interesting post uh, MBA stuff with real estate and investment and money management. Seems like he's doing great. Um, but to the more current crop of MBA Huskies, uh, I think first, well, you, you, you talked about the players coming back from injury and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I first want to say, can we please find a team for Shabazz Napier? Uh, I mentioned this in an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago you know, how, I don't, how do, is a Thomas Sadorowski on a roster and Shabazz isn't, um, and, and you can go down the list, you know, how is the corpse of Derek Rose still collecting an NBA contract and Shabazz can't, um, so free Shabazz. And also, you know, the rumors are, are piling up now after the James Harden trade that sent Jared Allen to the Cavs that Andre Drummond, could be on the move as well with the Cavs looking to offload him. Uh, so I really would like to see him on a playoff team because I think he was miscast in the NBA as this generational big man talent 
uh, when in reality, I just think he's an incredible rim runner. And if you put him on a team where he doesn't have an offense running through him, I think he can be very successful uh, and really help an NBA team in the stretch run as they try to get to the playoffs. Maybe the Celtics, who knows? I would love to see that. Um, so those are two players to kind of keep an eye out for, you know, as the trade deadline gets closer. Um, and then you also, uh, one who, player who did not get love from you, I don't think, was Rudy Gay, who continues to carve out a role for the Spurs. Um, and what I like what Popovich is doing is he has Rudy Gay, LaMarcus Aldridge, kind of taking a backseat to this new Spurs young core with a fresh, fresh, healthy Deontay Murray. Uh, and I like that career trajectory trajectory for Rudy Gay, where he is kind of, you know, on the back nine and can settle into a roster, be a little bit more efficient and kind of finish his career, you know, averaging double figures for a decent playoff team inside out threat. Uh, that's a great, way I think to end a very productive career for Rudy Gay and hopefully he gets a ring out of it uh, if not with the Spurs somewhere else Jeremy Lamb did come back Uh, I did not watch him play but he returned from his ACL injury Um, I think the report that I read is that he looked smooth in his debut we we know that's a word that we have assigned to to Jeremy Lamb since 2011 Um, and then I think it's, it, it's, it's time we talk about Kemba, who has shown no ill effects from his stem cell injection to his knee. Uh, and in fact, I wanted to, to, to research this and because he had been talking to the press nonstop about like, I'm pain-free, I'm pain-free. And I raised my eyebrow at first and I was like, well, I kind of remember you saying you were pain-free in the NBA bubble back during the summer. So I pulled up a couple of older articles and the differences in his comments is pretty stark. I'll read them to you. Uh, In June, he says, it was definitely a pain. I can't really explain it, but it was pain on the side of my knee that was bothering me. I don't know what, I don't know what, don't know how much else I can say. Uh, In January or earlier this month, uh, Kemba now says it feels weird actually not having pain. If that makes sense. It's kind of a weird feeling. I've been hurt for a long time. So I was just really happy to get out there. Just super excited. Um, and it shows in his play. He, he, he's got, he's retained his quickness, his cutting. Uh, he just looks like he's uninhibited out there, which is great news for UConn and Celtics fans, uh, alike, because as far as a quick little note about the Celtics, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum continue to take that next step. So Kemba so far is seamlessly transitioning into that third, third role. And I'll pose the question to you guys. Is there besides I'm not counting the nets and whatever that debacle is, but is there a better third option out there in the NBA right now? Probably not, but Kemba Walker is, is um, you know, uh, I'm a little insulted, I have to say, as someone who knows nothing about the Boston Celtics and their roster makeup, uh, he's really got, you know, like last last second shot, fourth quarter, they're not going to look to Kemba to take that? I I think you know, Brad Stevens is, you know, the, you know, the, the drawn up play wizard, but I think the the way that teams have not been able to keep Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in front uh, of them 
I, I, I think you're, you're going to see maybe in certain, certain instances, if Kemba is guarding maybe a slower footed point guard or he's, he's being guarded by a slower footed guy, uh, or if they can get a, a screen switch and exactly like the pit game from 2011, uh, you know, if they, if McGee switches on him in, in that similar fold, yeah, he could maybe get the last shot. And as UConn fans, we all would feel pretty good about that. Um, but he's joining a team that with two stars, 22 uh, years younger each that, and they've shown Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have both hit shots. So it's like kind of a three headed monster of who gets the last look. And so Kemba, he won't be completely sidelined, but he's got competition for that cardiac shot. Fair enough. Well, you know, I was, I was, the reason I was lamenting that is because, you know, Kemba really is the Yukon shining star in the NBA. Uh, back in the day, there'd be at least a couple of guys that are really, really good that, that we could hang our hats on. And, and um, you know, Drummond is kind of there, like you said, you know, everyone got into a place with Drummond where they had such high hopes for him that he kind of became like a light disappointment, even though he's this like epic rebounder and an amazing athlete for his size. Um, but it does seem like UConn guys, you know, to, to speak to your point about Rudy Gay, it does seem like UConn guys have this knack for hanging on. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, not like in a, um, you know, Brett Favre kind of way where you're not that good, but like they find, you know, find legitimate roles for themselves. I think about players like, um, you know, even Charlie Villanueva as an example, as someone who kind of like, uh, or, or Karan Butler, who, you know, they have ups and downs across their career, but they kind of settle into this place where they're a veteran contributor. Um, and I think that'd be a cool, cool place for Gay to end up a, a, as well. Um, and I'm encouraged to see what, what goes on with Drummond, but ultimately um, hope we just see m- more UConn guys end up in the NBA. That's, that's the most important thing right now is we got to, we got to fill that bucket a little bit more because there's only like four guys on a roster right now. Shabazz Napier, uh, after being on a roster for so long, um, now off of now, now not on one very disappointing, most recently on the Washington wizards. Um, you know, I think he had acquitted himself nicely as someone who could contribute in that third guard role. So, so that's a little bit disappointing. Um, Patrick, anything on the Huskies, that are in the G League. We've got what uh, Christian Vital as as part of the Grizzlies organization. Amita Brima, uh, I believe, still with the Pacers. Is that right? Yeah, Amita is with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. Huge fan of that name, by the way. <laughs> um, and you know, he has a city. You know, I, I as I pointed out in the article, um, I feel like Brima has a situation where. And he's one injury away from being called up. Uh, you know, Sabonis gets hurt. Miles, I think actually Miles Turner just recently did get hurt. Uh, and Amita is someone who like, you know what you're getting from him every time. You're getting defense, shot blocking, rim running, and energy. Uh, and, and those are things that I think are a premium in this NBA uh, because it, that allows you to – Space the court a little bit, you know. If you have one guy rim running instead of just plotting in the paint, um, so we'll see with that. Um, the Christian Vital, you know, I remember getting very excited when Memphis had signed him, and then he got pushed back down 
Uh, have not heard from that yet, but I know their season starts in February. Will be one to watch. I mean, you know, we we spent four years watching Christian Vital. Has he ever underperformed any expectation? He continually, <laughs> from the start, always ends up somewhere in like a situation that's a little better than what people had pegged him for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I wouldn't be surprised to see that continue. Doesn't mean he, you know, I'm not saying he will be a you know ten point per game you know, off the bench shooter, but crazier things have happened. I can see him at some point getting a shot. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of like you said with Brahma, CV has a set of skills that, that there is a market for, you know, he's a guard. He's, he's fits in that kind of like combo guard mold. He can score, he can make plays a little bit. He's also a very strong rebounder uh, for a guard. Um so it's just, it's just, you know, something to think about for everyone with respect to the NBA these days. It's so hard to get a roster spot. Um, the path to, uh, you know, the NBA going through the G League is not, is not as crazy as it once sounded. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm optimistic for both of those guys because um, they both seem to have at least something to offer at the next level, which, which is exciting. And um, maybe with some development, they can get there. Yeah. And I guess I should, uh, should mention round out the group uh, and talk quickly about Jalen Adams uh, who had uh, yeah. played, I think in the early fall uh, in France for champagne basket and um, was averaging 20 points per game and shooting 37% from downtown. Um, which I find interesting because he wasn't necessarily a dead eye shooter. At UConn. In fact, that was his one fatal flaw. I, I would say that prevented him from being, um, I think a more well sought after pro. Uh, so I think he is now with the Erie Bayhawks, which is the new Orleans Pelican affiliate. Yeah. And in the same light as Brima, um, you know, we we've seen with how the NBA is trying to navigate COVID-19, um, any player in the G league, I think should have kind of one ear to the, you know, to the ground as far as depth wise, you know, Lonzo ball goes out with something and Jalen could find himself at the end of the end of the roster. And then at that point it's who knows. Uh, and I always liked Jalen Adams's skill set. I thought he was a very underrated passer. He has the prototypical size, excellent at getting into the lane, and, you know, had, again, had the mark of a good defender. It just, you know, that outside shot, he couldn't get that separation that Shabazz and Kemba had developed. And that's what, in, in, in that sense, he kind of had the expectations of like, oh, next Kemba, next Shabazz placed on him during a downtime in UConn's um, history. I think, again, he could be someone who will almost kind of get passed over for a while and then secretly kind of get another look and turn some heads. Yes. Uh, right. Agreed. Uh, Jalen Adams had a lot of, um, uh, he didn't have the same kind of team around him, you know, compared to those previous guys that we, we, we do compare him to, but he certainly has um, individually the talent level and um, can certainly develop into someone that, that uh, NBA teams want on their roster. So uh yeah, definitely names to keep an eye on. Those are all guys, you know, the G League guys who could make their NBA uh, NBA debuts this this year, which uh, which would be exciting. Um, someone who is 
very much not on the fringe of relevance as a pro uh, pro potential um, is in Major League Baseball. We saw former UConn Husky George Springer uh, sign a six-year, $150 million contract with the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, previously of the Houston Astros, where he won a World Series and World Series MVP and uh, did it all above the level with no cheating whatsoever. Um, but so I know there's a lot of, of Yankees fans and Red Sox fans um, uh, among the UConn fan base. Uh, Toronto is in your division, uh, correct? So you'll be seeing health, all of you will be seeing healthy doses of George Springer in the future. But uh, thoughts, thoughts on the big contract for the former Husky? Uh, I, I think it's great. Obviously, it's great for Jim Penders, who, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago was playing in a glorified high school baseball field and trying to get kids from New York and New Jersey to in Connecticut to come play, uh, you know, in the American and, and, you know, try and build something in stores. And, you know, in that time, he's turned out a ton more major leaguers, got a new stadium built that's ready to get broken in uh, this spring. And, uh, you know, had an alumni capture the largest professional contract uh, by a UConn athlete in school history. So not a bad uh, few years for Jim Penders and crew. Um, but I, I think it's it's great for, for Springer. He has had an imp- incredible career with the Astros, uh, established himself as one of the top outfielders in baseball, one of the, you know, top leadoff hitters in baseball, um, and was able to get a big contract after, you know, being with the Astros for his entire career. Um, so he, he signed the, the contract. He'll be 32, I believe when, when the season kicks off this year. So um, he'll likely finish his career as a blue Jay, or at least the bulk of his prime as a blue Jay. But um, as a Red Sox fan myself, it's certainly a little scary to have to go up against Springer and that team. So many times um, they're, they're forming a really dangerous team that can compete for years to come in the AL East and Springer should be a key part of that for at least the next three or four seasons. Yeah, I was definitely disappointed that he ended up going to the Blue Jays just because we're going to see him so much as Red Sox fans when the Mets were, I think, really one of the other finalists. And it would have been great because he would have been in the region, but in the National League, rarely playing the Red Sox and someone that you can root to do well. And it's not like we won't want Springer to do well for the Blue Jays, but it just is a little disappointing that he's going to be in the division, but yeah, I think it's great for UConn as a whole. I think it's good that he's away from the Astros after all the scandals that they have that you can hopefully he'll, I mean, he'll always be tied to that Astros scandal, but I think it's better that he won't be there for his entire career and people will maybe associate him more with the blue Jays at the end of his career. So yeah, I think it's just a very good situation for UConn and just shows kind of where, Jim Penders program is because it all started to turn around for Penders or not turn around, but take the next step for Penders right around that George Springer class, that 2010 team that hosted a regional, a 2011 team, one of the only teams in modern history that have gone to a super regional. So obviously that's the next step for where UConn baseball is now. And it's great that Penders can be on the recruiting trail and not only now have this really nice stadium to show off to recruits, but also be able to point to, George Springer, and then also Nick Ahmed, Matt Barnes, Scott Andrioli, 
Mike Ol, all these guys that have been in the majors have had success in the majors. John Andrioli did not have any success in the majors. He played for the Anthony K too. He played for an awful Orioles team. Um, hey, being there is success. You don't need to. Yeah, no, he. I mean, it, there was like what six or seven guys from that team that ended up making the major leagues from that yeah, 2011 was, team, Dan. It was a. Ri- I, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. It might even be closer to 10. It's a ridiculous it number. Like it's by far the most talented team in program history. Well, the Huskies are continuing to look to improve as a program on that front. Um, yeah. I, I mean, great example that they'll be able to, to give uh, with, with Springer's success as a, you know, extraordinary high point with all due respect to Walt Dropo uh, and his uh 1957 uh, rookie of the year season. I don't, that's not the exact year. Please do not. The baseball team has been the Yukon baseball team has been releasing some information about the upcoming schedule um, from what uh, me, the very basic fan can gather is it looks like a lot of highly ranked teams um, in the early uh, non-conference portion of the schedule. Um I think it was something like three or four ranked teams, still more to come uh, on the schedule itself, but uh, Connolly initial impressions from what we know about the UConn baseball schedule. Yeah. Well, you can tell that the change to the big East is already affecting how the program kind of goes about things because the AAC was one of the better baseball conferences in the country. It, wasn't great at a whole lot of things, but it was a really good baseball conference. The Big East is a definite step down and baseball is probably the only program at UConn that doesn't benefit from the move to the Big East. And I'm sure Jim Penders will find a way to make it a benefit anyways, but they're going to open the season against Virginia, who's ranked number five in some polls. They go to Southern Mississippi, who's got a solid program. They play Coastal Carolina, who won a national championship in 2016. And they also play Texas Tech, who I believe is also a top 10 team, along with some other regional opponents that all have varying strength and strengths and weaknesses. But I think it is just interesting. They have played good teams in the past. Like last year, they played Michigan, who was ranked number one in one poll and beat them a couple times. But usually those series were maybe one offs, two offs. They didn't play really highly ranked teams a whole lot because you always had the conference schedule to back on. Whereas now you don't have that. You need to play a strong non-conference schedule to be able to keep your RPI up despite playing these big East games. So I think it's good to see them already taking action and putting those steps into motion. And it should be a pretty fun year, especially because this is finally going to be their first year that they play in Elliott ballpark, their new stadium. Oh yeah, that's right. So last season was supposed to be when they, they debuted the new ballpark um is that right yeah there was i think the home opener was going to be maybe a week or two after everything shut down and the season got canceled they got really close to it but now it's not going to happen so the first game is going to be march 10th which i believe either was the day things got shut down for the team or was the day it was supposed to open last year it's a significant date that they're opening the stadium on march 10th so Everything that I've heard about the stadium has been fantastic and it'll be good because now it's not just baseballs playing in a finished stadium, but there are things of the certain parts of the ballpark weren't completely finished. Like the press box wasn't going to be finished. I know the bathrooms weren't going to be done. There was still going to be a lot of construction going around everywhere. Well, 
everywhere else. But now not only the stadium is 100% complete, the facility that's going to be next to it, the Rizza Family Sports Complex Performance Center, that's the exact name of it. From the photos I've seen, I don't know for sure, but it looks like it's getting much closer to significant completion. The soccer stadium, I believe, is completely done. It looks like the new practice field where J.O. Christian Field used to sit. That looks like at least the turf's down and it's done. I know softball's been practicing on their new field while the stadium around it gets constructed. So really good progress with that area of the campus. And it's just a remarkable turnaround if you haven't been to campus and seen that yet just from what it used to be. And obviously my entire college career was basically with the old stadium. So it's a shock for me to see this difference. So I think that'll just be an awesome step for the program and it'll be great for them to finally get that ballpark open. Yes, agreed. Well, Connolly, um, in terms of watching the campus improve after you leave, uh, just get used to that. That's pretty much the running theme uh, every Every three, five, 10 years, you'll, you'll see it just look completely different. You'll tell people it used to look so different. Nobody will care. Um, it's it's the, the circle of life. So congrats on getting started on that front. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the new stadium is, is definitely a really exciting component for, for the baseball team this year. Hopefully uh, our listeners get a chance to go check out a game if uh, it's open to fans. Um, in other schedule news, we also got the info uh, for the schedules for uh, UConn soccer. Both the men and the women will be playing uh, playing a run of games this this spring. Um, I understand there's going to be a championship as well. Uh, Connolly, you want to want to tell us about that? Right. So. Uh- This past week, the Big East announced all its championship dates and locations for all its spring sports. But when fall sports got canceled, it had kind of left an open-ended answer saying that maybe fall sports might get pushed to the spring. But there hadn't been any formal announcement. And there had been whispers of it and rumors flying around, but nothing had actually been officially confirmed to us until the Big East announced it. UConn released pretty much all its schedules for these fall slash spring sports now. So we got conference schedules for both the men's and women's team, I asked. And it sounds like both teams are also going to play about two to three non-conference games. I wasn't able to confirm if the teams are in full practice yet with the full team, but I know they are in training camp. They're practicing together in some capacity. I know the women were down to two pods, whereas I'm not really sure where the men are. The flow of information out of the men's program has never been the best. So I think it's just very exciting that we're going to have a season to begin with, because there's a real possibility that there wasn't going to be any college soccer this year. So I think it's just exciting that there's going to be something in the first place. And along the same lines of the baseball team, soccer was going to have its chance to play in its new stadium for the first time this fall. That didn't happen. So instead of having to wait until next year, it gets to open that new stadium this spring and it should it's uh, it looks great from the photos i've seen so that again will be another big step for the program and i think being back in the big east is going to be a huge huge help for both programs nice uh patrick our resident uh college men's soccer expert uh what were your thoughts after taking a look at at the schedule for the huskies in the big east slate well, for starters, no team in college soccer really needed like a 
like a scheduled news dump than UConn men's soccer. Um, people forget back in 2019, that was Ray Reed's first losing season for UConn. I mean, it was a dumpster fire of a year uh, with injuries, you know, whiffed on expectations, but 5-12-1 and one is very uncharacteristic of UConn men's soccer. Uh, so hopping back into the Big East, a shiny new stadium, all of those things are hopefully a nice palate cleanser for how awful that year was. Um, so, yeah, it is um, – pull up some information here. It will be – the Big East is broken into divisions for this little 2021 spring soiree. Uh, you, we've got Georgetown, Providence, St. John's, um, and Seton Hall and Villanova. Uh, in our division, and we will do home and homes with each of them. Uh, and then I'm pretty sure I think they take the top team or maybe the top two teams and do an interdivision uh, with the West, which consists of Marquette, Creighton, Butler, Xavier. Um, so one thing that I think people need to recognize, though, is that the AAC was a slowly becoming a very strong soccer conference. Um, SMU and you, in the directional Florida schools as USF and UCF were had a very successful string of seasons, I'd say for the past five years. Um, and so while Georgetown did win, you know, the, the college cup last year or in 2019, uh, there are RPI, um, RPI wise SMU was, I think third and Georgetown was one. And it, it, it's not just from the top two, you know, they each have like a heavyweight, you know, Georgetown is the biggest heavyweight SMU was the AACs. And then you had UCF and USF in the top 15, while the big East has Providence and St. John's at least for 2019. Um, so the American was a, pretty good soccer conference i mean memphis was okay uh cincinnati was a program with history until they inexcusably cut soccer uh that's neither here nor there but more importantly it's about fit and now uconn won't have to hop on a plane and go play tulsa now they have all these regional schools right there that they have built in caked in rivalries with uh, so that is a great thing. And as Dan said, you pick up a couple of more non-conference games, maybe against a Rhode Island or a Rutgers. I'm pretty sure Ray Reed and Jim McKeldry have some sort of connection at Rutgers. That's the makings of a pretty solid schedule. Um, but then I think they, they should be ready for the, uh, the start, which we're coming in at – Providence coming in February 27th. So that's, I mean, it's, it's a tough schedule. And for a UConn team that is coming off that awful year, there's a lot of question marks there. Um, you know, they lost most of their offensive production, Jordan Hall, Dayon Harris, who is uh, for Real Salt Lake the last time I checked in their uh, USL team. However, um, soccer teams are only as good as their spine. And then when you consider they still have Robin Lapper or Robin Lappert 
can't tell if that if that's an official friend's pronunciation or not. Felix Metzer and Musa Wade anchoring the middle. Uh, so they have pr- a promising spine, and Ray Reed can recruit. So maybe if he brings it, some of the freshmen outperform, they should it should be a seamless, seamless transition to the Big East. But, I mean, there's an argument to be said. It's kind of a sideways move with the way some of the American teams have played lately. So, you know, we, we know the uh, – thanks for catching us up on where UConn is right now. Um, looking at, at that division um, that you mentioned, that kind of they, they're breaking the league up into divisions – um, you know, are there some powers on that list? I feel like Georgetown's usually a pretty good team every year, right? Georgetown, I think they sent four people. They just put four people into the uh, MLS Super Draft uh, that that occurred last week. Um, but they're a team that just essentially reloads. So they will be the team to beat. Uh, I remember checking on St. John's roster, and they did not have a ton of upperclassmen. So St. John's would be a team to watch. And then as is with, you know, regional rivalries, it's always going to be a game against Providence. Uh, That's a very well-run soccer program uh, as much as I hate to say it, but they, I mean, they are a, you know, a well-established team with an identity. So I think that should be your um, kind of the upper echelon. And what will be fun is it's, you know, the team, that really kind of I think everyone steps on a little bit has been Villanova in, in a complete reversal of you know, the basketball fortunes uh, have not been able to produce a lot of talent there in Philly. So I can continue to see Georgetown, St. John's and Providence being that the teams to beat in that division and how UConn fares in those home and homes will establish where they are uh, you know, and where they end up in the schedule. Awesome. Well, we know that that season's getting started relatively soon. So uh, thank you so much for that, Patrick. We are going to take a quick break and then we'll talk UConn women's hoops and ice bus. All right. Well, we've run through a couple of different Husky sports and to move on to the next one, UConn men's hockey uh, in the midst of a very exciting season just came off of a weekend series against Boston College, their second time facing the Eagles for two. This time, BC was ranked number one in the country. Um, The Huskies managed to get two out of six points in the series. Um, I I say that delicately because um, the first game was an overtime win. That is technically a tie, but also potentially a win for tie-breaking purposes. I believe that's right. Conley, feel free to correct me. But uh, And then the Huskies wrapped up the weekend with a loss, 4-2 to two at Fridas. Um, still acquitted themselves nicely, played really well against, against a really good team. Looks like UConn has the juice to make something happen. Looks like they have, um, you know, some promise. But we did just see the the rankings come out and some of us feel like the Huskies got snubbed, not appearing in uh, the top 20 rankings. Connolly, what's up with the UConn Huskies this year? How do we feel after this weekend and how do we feel about uh, the possibility of being snubbed by the rankings? 
I think it's impossible to come out of the series feeling disappointed in any sense because, yes, they only get two out of six points, and, yeah, the rankings, points, record, whatever you want to call it system is just doesn't make any sense to me because if you get a win, that counts as three points. If you get an overtime win, that only counts as two points, but in your record, that'll go down as a win. But then if you get a shootout win, which is what UConn did against BC on Friday – that only counts as a tie, even though that also counts as two points, which is the exact same as an overtime win. Yet the thing that counts less as a regulation win still counts as a win. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't really get it. But So they played BC four times. And if you look at it this way, they have been there have been 12 points available throughout those four games. And UConn has taken half of them. And I don't know what way you want to cut it. That is a huge achievement for UConn, especially considering BC's number one, and especially considering the second series where they still got two out of six points, which isn't nothing to, which isn't nothing. BC had most of their guys from the world juniors championship back, including Spencer Knight, their goaltender. And from the time I've covered the team, Spencer Knight's the best college goaltender I've ever seen. He's phenomenal. UConn played fantastic in both games and just got robbed by night on numerous occasions so if they really played with anyone else in goal i think there's a pretty strong chance that they sweep that series that's how well they played so it's a very good weekend result for them we don't know who they're playing next because hockey east is scheduling things week by week and they're not announcing the schedule until tuesday at three which is frustrating for planning purposes and for podcasting purposes so i think they're having a really good year this is easily the best team they've ever had at UConn. They're getting results. They've only had, I'd say really one or two really disappointing performances where they just had looked terrible and inexcusably. And they have had some reasons to not play great in certain games. So I think it, they're very promising. The offense has really come on recently. Tomaj Romashka in goal has been fantastic. So I think they're on a really good track. I don't really know where they're going to finish in the standings just because all but four of their games this year have been against ranked opponents and hockey East is just a very, very deep conference this year. So they got a good team and I don't know how well it's going to be reflected in their win loss record just because of how weird the year has been. But as for them being ranked, I do kind of understand the sentiment because if you can beat, come back in the third period, score two goals in the final three minutes to tie the game and send it to overtime control overtime and then win a shootout pretty easily to nothing. Then. Yeah. I think that does help you. I just, the rankings don't really make sense to me. You've got a lot of teams in there. Like UMass Lowell, for one example, they've only played four games this year. They've barely played at all. They've been hit by COVID a couple times and they're still hanging out at number 16, which I understand you can't really knock anyone for not playing, but at the same time, you can't just leave them there. I feel like when they haven't necessarily proven that they should be there besides whatever their preseason expectations were, but it's January. And for reference, UConn's played 13 games to this point in the year. And then you have Denver at number 20, who's six, nine and one. And that very much feels like a team that's only there because of their name. Whereas if UConn was six, nine and one, regardless of who they had played, I don't really think they'd even be receiving votes or Providence is five, five and four and UConn is five, six and two. UConn has a win over Providence. I haven't really been impressed by Providence this season. They're in the rankings. So 
UConn's got 21 votes. I think that's a pretty good sign there. If it was a top 25, they would be number 24. I just don't think it's going to be tough for UConn to get into this rankings this season unless they play someone like Northeastern or BU or even Providence, someone else who's in the top 20. And then I think they'd have to sweep that team and they'd have to do it pretty convincingly because just as I've looked through the polls all season long, voters haven't really punished teams a ton for losses. I mean, BC stays at number one, despite the tie, I guess, against UConn, despite their last three weekends, they split points against UNH. They didn't play great against Merrimack and they honestly got outplayed by UConn last weekend. So I don't really think they deserve number one either, but they have a nine, two and one record. So it looks good on paper. So I wouldn't really worry too much about the polls just because I think they're a little weird this year with no non-conference games, but I think it would be a very good, meaningful step for UConn to get ranked just how it was meaningful for UConn men's basketball to get back into the polls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the fact that the number of votes for UConn has gone up, um, right. was pretty significant. I'd say it was a, it seemed like I don't have the exact number for what they had been getting for receiving votes in previous weeks in front of me, but um, seemed like it was a higher number this time out at least. Yeah. As far as I know, they dropped out of the receiving votes area. I believe it was right after their series against UNH or right around the Christmas time. They had been right on the fringe, like the second team from getting in. Then they dropped out. I think it might've been before the first UNH series on new years where they didn't play necessarily great. And I think they split that series. Then after last weekend where they just dominated and swept UNH with 14 goals on the weekend, they only had two receiving received two votes. So I think that was their first reappearance if my memory serves me correctly. And then they jumped 19 votes here. So I think there are people that are aware that UConn's playing well, but for reference, you know, Denver is 20th and they have 78 votes and UConn's only at 21. Notre Dame, who just missed the cut, is at 65. So they have a pretty significant way to go to get into the polls. But I think the fact that they're at least in the conversation is a good sign. Yep. Well, uh, be sure to keep up uh, week over week as we find out about schedule updates. We'll have that for you on the UConn blog and for more in-depth coverage, you can always go to the UConn Hockey Hub which contains premium content, including its own podcast dedicated to coverage of the men's hockey team uh, and more from Daniel Connolly, the top UConn men's hockey journalist out there, in my opinion. In women's hoops, we had some excitement uh, this past week. In between absolute beatdowns of Big East squads, the Huskies made a trip over to Knoxville, Tennessee to play against Uh, A historic rival, uh, ranked 25th at the time, Tennessee. Um, For those of you who may be younger, Tennessee used to be a very big power uh, in the sport of women's basketball. Uh, You may be excused if they are not very much on your radar right now. The program has certainly fallen on some hard times. Um, And, and, you know, we wish them the best as as they look to improve in the future. I think there's a lot to talk about, though, with respect to this game. The Huskies did not have their best performance. They were trailing at the end of each of the quarters. Uh, their their budding star, Paige Beckers, was not having her best game. Um, 
Evina Westbrook transfer playing against her former team. Um, they were, they were trailing late in the fourth quarter or sorry, they were trailing going into the fourth quarter. Um, and then, you know, uh, turned on the jets and, and left with a six point victory, 67, 61. Um, uh, I think we have to give them a lot of credit here for their, for their response to adversity. And, and then also, um, you know, Paige Beckers for hitting that that big shot at the end, even on a night where, where she was not having a good one. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think from really the opening tip, it was just a very weird game. UConn came out, and in the first quarter, they're having Olivia Nelson, Adota, and Aubrey Griffin just launch threes and deep shots, and those aren't their two best three-point shooters. So it was a very weird start to the game. The entire game just had a very weird feel to it. In my opinion, UConn trailed at the end of every single quarter, which is obviously very unlike how they've played this season against Big East opponents. But I think you saw in the fourth quarter, they didn't panic when they were down. They realized the situation they were in, and they just made a run to come back. Avina Westbrook, who transferred from Tennessee, hit some big shots in what was obviously a very emotional game for her. And then UConn kind of looks like it's pulling away. They go down the court, Paige Becker's hits Kristen Williams on a backdoor cut and transition to go up nine. Tennessee calls a timeout and it just looks like UConn's about to pull away. And then camera shows Paige Beckers limping off the court in pretty clear pain. Then suddenly it goes to commercial and you're left waiting, trying to figure out what's happening. And then the cameras catch that she turns her ankle and she tries to stay in, but she obviously couldn't move around the court. She could barely move from her spot. She was in a ton of pain. So she finally comes out goes underneath the bleachers to get her ankle taped. And just as she goes out, Tennessee starts coming back. They start clawing their way back into it. Gino leaves her on the bench after another timeout before finally putting her in. Tennessee gets within two, and it's really looking like it's starting to slip away from UConn. It had vibes in my sense to that Notre Dame game, the second Notre Dame Final Four game where UConn led by a pretty good amount with three or four minutes left and it looked like they were going to cruise to the national championship. Then Notre Dame came back and UConn just couldn't find the basket. And A similar thing seemed to be happening, happening here where UConn couldn't find the basket again without Beckers on the court. And then she comes back in, the shot clock's winding down. She shoots it at the buzzer of the shot clock, drains it, and just hits probably what is the best singular play in a win for UConn in at least recent memory. I can't off the top of my head think of another play that's had that much of an impact on its own and is just such a defining moment already for Paige Becker's career. So it was one of the better games that just for someone to watch of the past few years, tying in everything with the history of the rivalry and I don't necessarily think that the fact that it was a close game with drama in it means that the rivalry still exists, but I do think it is good that there was some, you know, excitement to the end as opposed to last year where you can kind of ran away with it. So it was just a great college basketball game and was just one of those ones that you walk out of shaking your head that one team just made a couple incredible plays to win the game. Yeah, Dan, I, I didn't get to catch, you know, didn't get to watch the full 40 minutes. I was able to watch most of the, the second half and a little bit of the first quarter, though. And I know you you wrote uh, as part of your UConn Women's Basketball Weekly newsletter uh, that's open to subscribe to. Uh, you wrote that the the UConn-Tennessee rivalry was was burning out. And 
I don't think you were really wrong, but I don't know if Tennessee really thought that because I, I thought I was pretty impressed with, with Tennessee. Honestly, I thought, um, they kind of hung around and, and they were definitely, you could definitely tell that they were trying to play up to the level that UConn, you know, had always plays to. Um, and it, it was, it was a really fun game. Like you said, it, it was one of the more enjoyable basketball games period that I've seen this season across NBA, men's basketball, women's basketball. Um, really cool to see Avina Westbrook kind of have a really solid game against her old team. And I know there's a lot of stuff with, with, uh, at Tennessee that we don't necessarily know about as a public. Um, it's clear that they did not leave on the best of terms. Um, and she rebounded with a 15 point game, hit a few big three pointers in the second half. And uh, you could tell that not only she was fired up about it, but her teammates were too. And I know that Becker shot at the end was, was just incredible. I know we were talking in our slack about whether it was really the best idea to put her in uh, after she turned that ankle, because as big of a game as UConn Tennessee is in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't mean anything. You know, UConn's still going to be a top four, five team with a one seed at the end of the day. Um, but I, I think she really put some pressure on Gino to get herself back into the lineup because uh, there was a little back and forth between the two of them when she had to come out for the first time. And I think she kind of weaseled her way into the lineup and, and hit that key shot. And I know, I think Amon, you tweeted that this was like the, you know, this will be the first 20 seconds of Paige Becker's Huskies of Honor intro video. Like, it, it's crazy. You know, it's not surprising because she's clearly the most talented player on the floor already. But it's crazy that she's already contributing in ways like this, even after, by her standards, a pretty bad game. Uh, she's still able to shake that off and hit a key shot when it matters. So uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good game. And I do hope UConn and Tennessee continue to play. I know it doesn't move the needle like it used to, or like UConn, Notre Dame, or, or even UConn, Oregon uh, kind of does now, but it's still really exciting to see. And I think overall it was, it was a really good performance by the Huskies as well. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with Paige Beckers, you, you have to think she's, she still is a freshman and um, you know, to her credit, she, she kept shooting, um, you know, even in that fourth quarter and she, uh, you know, they had all the confidence in her to give her the ball and let her take that that shot too at the end of the game. So I think that shows a you know tremendous response by the team. Um, you know, kind of to your point, Connolly, it's it's started to seem like a lot of those games where UConn lost, um, where they get kind of punched in the face and they are trailing a little bit and they don't really know how to respond in those um, because they're not in a lot of those really tight late game situations. Um, it's almost like the, you know, like the Mighty Ducks. We feel like the slow version of the theme song is playing, um, you know, as UConn is struggling in the third and fourth quarters uh, of a potential loss. But I think it's really impressive the way they they battled back um, for, for, for Paige Beckers to put this, you know, write this first chapter in her, in her you know, UConn career highlight reel. Um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, for it to be uh, the first big play for the program in a long time, the big individual play in a win um, obviously speaks to just how much the, this team has absolutely throttled all of its competition for a very long time. Um, so we don't get the, the pleasure of a lot of really epic buzzer beaters or what have you. Yeah. Very, very entertaining game. I think, you know, as far as the rivalry is concerned, I, I know I made some jokes earlier. Um, obviously there still is a ton of animosity between both fan bases. And I think that's 
always a super important ingredient uh, for for a rivalry. It's part of why the AAC was such a such a bad place for UConn. Um, but the other part of it is relevance, right? And and UConn has been this absolute juggernaut. There's been a few contenders to that to that throne, but um, Tennessee has certainly not been one of those contenders over the past eight or ten years or so. So if they do ever, you know, make a make a return to to national prominence, um, that would be the you know uh, opportunity to really talk about like a renewal of the rivalry. But but yeah, as it stands. Um, always will be entertaining to mix it up in that way uh, to have a scenario where, where there's a, a heated discussion around a game and, and lots of history uh, to talk about and reflect on um, overall good, good win for the Huskies and gutsy stuff from, from Paige Beckers and, and, you know, the team as a whole, Avina Westbrook, Olivia Nelson, Ododo, I think had some really big plays down the stretch. So Kristen Williams was, was, um, helping them out on the scoring front. I think uh, lots of positive things to take away, you know, as we're going through a big East slate that <laughs> is, is playing out a lot like the, the AAC slate. Yeah. And just to mention Kristen Williams, I think that might've been her best performance of her UConn career. Obviously there's that huge point total against Notre Dame, but tonight or against Tennessee, Kristen Williams was hitting shots when UConn desperately needed them to. She was their best offensive player at times when they couldn't find the basket. And that isn't something that we've seen from her a whole lot. So I thought that was a very, very promising development. And I think just for as well as I think a lot of people have come forward, like Avina Westbrook has definitely progressed as the years gone on and has definitely gotten more comfortable in a UConn uniform. I think Olivia Nelson Adota has struggled a little bit recently and struggled against Tennessee's big, but then Aubrey Griffin's coming on as well. It just seems like there's kind of a give or take in every single spot where there's for every good, there's a bad. And one of the bads is Paige Beckers obviously misses the Georgetown game on Saturday with that ankle injury. But even more surprisingly, UConn announced Anamakarat was out indefinitely with some lower foot leg issue that Gino didn't have a timetable on for her return, but he said it's been bothering her for a couple weeks. They thought she would be able to play through it with rehab and that hasn't been the case. So they're pretty much shutting her down to see if that'll do it. So I think it's, even though she hasn't had a great year, I do think it is concerning that she hasn't played a whole lot to this point and is now going to be out for who knows how long, especially with how thin their backcourt is. Nika Mule is the only guard they have coming off the bench. They do have Sailor Poffin Barger, Barger coming in early, but I wouldn't expect her to come in right away and have any impact at all just because she's coming straight out of high school. So I think that as long as they can get her healthy and avoid a more major injury, the quicker they get her back, the better. Yep. So the Huskies um... – did add a game to the schedule also. Uh, I think that's relevant update. It looks like it's going to be their next scheduled game at number 19, Arkansas. So another um, SEC opponent. Uh, and then they'll be at DePaul for their second straight road game against a ranked opponent. Uh, right now, the Blue Demons ranked 17th in the country. We know we love to call that a trap game, but uh, something to keep an eye on for the Huskies going forward. Those games are January 28th, Thursday at 5 p.m. 
against Arkansas and Sunday, January 31st, 1 p.m. against DePaul. Yeah, and just to give a quick plug to our women's basketball podcast, Chasing Perfection, but on our last episode, I mentioned this, that DePaul doesn't even really feel like a ranked team anymore because UConn's essentially got the formula for how to beat them. So it was like when they played DePaul, it never feels like a test of how good UConn is. It's just a test of how well UConn can handle DePaul, whereas I feel like games against Arkansas and Tennessee, those are quote unquote, real ranked teams that are a much better litmus test for where this team is and how well they'll compete against some of the better teams in the country. So I think everyone's kind of struggled with lower ranked teams and unranked teams. So I think the fact that UConn's pretty much handled its business in the big East and still managed to win against a Tennessee team that is probably going to be better than we give them that we gave them credit for before the game, by the end of the season, I think it is good to see them win, and this Arkansas game on the road will just be another good test for the team. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening. Oh, man, we're not going to talk about UConn football today. We went we went in pretty deep on that like two podcasts ago, right? Actually, yeah, we, it, it, it was is probably worth mentioning that someone from UConn football is going to win the Super Bowl this year. Oh, yeah, yeah. For the yeah. Third, third year in a row. There you go. There's your clip. Dynasty. <laughs> drop it in. Drop it in outtakes or whatever, so we can legally say. Um, we, I did not know Andrew Adams was on the Buccaneers until Etzel tweeted that tweeted that thing out. I was like, "Good luck to two Huskies going going at it in the championship games this weekend." I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." Yeah. Anyone but the Bills won. I think that would have been the case too, because Tim Boyle and the Packers, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if he would have claimed honorary Husky honors, but yeah, he's, he's still a former UConn player, UConn legend. Yeah, it, it's for a, all the for all the quarterback issues that we've had since Dan Orlovsky left, I think pretty unequivocally, how we ruined Tim Boyle is definitely the biggest mistake. Like of all the mistakes, he's definitely the biggest one. And not yeah, I like mean, as a negative to Tim Boyle, as a negative to how you kind But like, was I mean, that... in terms of who we screwed up the most, I still think it's Donovan Williams. Not that he was better than either of those guys, but like, I mean, Diaco just used him like a rag doll. There, it was, it was like the dinner party office scene, like red shirt, unred shirt, red shirt, unred shirt. Like, it was insane. <laughs> yeah, but like Tim Boyle was not. We clearly know an NFL talent, and he was somehow god awful for us. Yeah, no, I, I think, agree. Well, that's like, I think that's Casey Cochran's. Line. I think Casey Cochran's a sad story, but like I don't think it was necessarily UConn's fault that he got concussed. No, but it might have been his. It might have been UConn's fault that he got concussed the fifth time, especially <laughs> like because mostly because it was like roster things, you know, like they just yeah they just didn't have quarterbacks, so. Um, but no, I, I I think you're right about Boyle, especially the fact that he's was on an on an NFL roster. I actually is he still on the team now? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's still the backup. backup. He beat out Deshaun Kaiser. They brought in Deshaun Kaiser to back up Aaron Rodgers, and he beat him out. And then they drafted Jordan Love, and he beat him out too. Patriots should trade for Tim Boyle. <laughs> That'd be for Tim Patriots Boyle. should trade for any quarterback with a pulse. Well, there's our, there's our UConn football bit. Very meaty. Good job, guys.